Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Greetings and thank you for joining us for this podcast on hypoglycemia. My name is Dr. Javier Morales. I am an internist and I practice in Roslyn, New York. I'm also Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in Hempstead, New York. I have the pleasure of being joined today by Dr. Lance Sloan, a triple boarded physician in endocrinology, nephrology, and internal medicine, and also a fellow of the American College of Endocrinology, the American Society of Nephrology, and the American College of Physicians. He currently is president of the Texas Institute for Kidney and Endocrine Disorders and is medical director of SNG Lufkin Dialysis. He also is clinical assistant professor at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Lance, thanks for coming and joining and talking to me a little bit about hypoglycemia. Thank you, Javier. Glad to be here. Well, I think many of us have many questions, and I think one of the booming questions is, what is hypoglycemia? How do we define hypoglycemia? Well, today's talk, of course, is focused on hypoglycemia in, in patients with diabetes, and this is a little different from individuals that don't have diabetes. Obviously, we're treating patients with diabetes with medications that can frequently lead to hypoglycemia, and this is an important question because hypoglycemia really varies from person to person. The true definition of hypoglycemia is where someone develops symptoms, ideally, and those symptoms are basically autonomic symptoms followed by what we call neuroglycopenic symptoms. So the autonomic symptoms are both from the sympathetic nervous system, but also the cholinergic system. And there are things that we're familiar with where the person doesn't feel good and feels hungry and shaky and sweaty. And hopefully this normally would lead to eating something to prevent further deterioration of hypoglycemia, which can then result in the neuroglycopenic symptoms where people actually don't start to think very well and may actually have a seizure or go into a coma and require the help of someone else. We call this severe hypoglycemia or could potentially even die from the hypoglycemia. Now, we know that from different studies that most individuals do not have symptoms of hypoglycemia unless their blood sugar drops below 70. So in the diabetes world, we therefore try to keep the blood sugars up above 70. But a lot of people won't develop symptoms until much lower levels. Women tend to develop symptoms at a lower level than men do. But for treatment purposes, we do try to keep the blood sugars up above 70. Now, this is actually of significant importance to most providers because I think most of us have had that number 70 ingrained for so many years. But Lance, you talked about something that was really, really important here, and that's the autonomic dysfunction that one sometimes will see with a hypoglycemic event. And I think that based on certain criteria, one can even argue 
that true physiologic hypoglycemia can occur with a glucose value of about 54, because that's when this noradrenergic system really kicks in. Isn't that right, Lance? Yes. Yeah, so again, it varies from individual to individual. And, and even in, within a particular individual, it can vary depending upon many different factors as to when this would particularly kick in. And the problem with a lot of our patients that have diabetes, particularly for many years, and particularly if the blood sugars have been high or poorly controlled with a lot of lows, is that they can actually lose this ability to have these adrenergic symptoms and go straight to the neuroglycopenic symptoms where they don't think well and maybe don't do the things that they need to do to correct that hypoglycemia. And we call this hypoglycemic unawareness. And this certainly can become a a problem over time. It certainly can. And I mean, certainly with the type ones that we're seeing where they are so intensively controlled with complex regimens that involve full physiologic replacement. Sometimes these major hypoglycemic events leading to this hypoglycemia unawareness is rather frequent and really problematic because the patients really don't feel that. They, they don't feel it coming on. Their hypoglycemia response times tend to be somewhat diminished as a consequence. And I know you probably do the same thing that I do whenever we experience patients that have these frequent major hypoglycemic events to manage hypoglycemia unawareness is a little bit of a challenge because sometimes you have to liberalize control or permissive hyperglycemia just to reset that mechanism of response. That's true, is that you'll sometimes have to go ahead and raise the goal let the blood sugars be a little higher, hopefully kind of regroup, get better control of the blood sugars, hopefully reduce variability with different uh, measures and things that we can talk about a little bit later. And then over time, you can possibly think about lowering their blood sugar goal. But sometimes, yes, you do have to back off to try to get some of this hypoglycemia awareness to come back and make it safer for these patients. Indeed. And I think that with some of these newer regimens that we've had available over the recent years for managing of diabetes, they are somewhat more forgiving because of their mechanism of action. So that makes it friendlier to use some of these newer agents. But Lance, I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about hypoglycemia. Who might be at greater risk of developing hypoglycemia? Well, certainly individuals that are on drugs that increase the body's insulin levels. So drugs that increase the body's insulin level are the ones that result in hypoglycemia usually. And of course, this can be from taking insulin exogenously, particularly with multiple daily injections, or can be using other drugs that we call secretagogues like sulfonylureas or megalotenides that we take orally and cause us to increase our endogenous production of, of insulin. These drugs can all result in an increased risk of hypoglycemia. Now, obviously, when we have a patient with type 1 diabetes, we don't have much of a choice. These people are insulin dependent and are going to require multiple daily injections of insulin or being on an insulin pump. Whereas people with type 2 diabetes these days, now that we have many other choices of medications, we would usually like to try to stay away from these medications at least initially, and use them that have a lower risk for hypoglycemia, the SGLT2 inhibitors, the GLP-1 agonists, Actos, metformin, all of these different medications that we have available that generally are very low risk for hypoglycemia. But certainly 
when you have a patient who has insulin deficiency, you have to add on insulin. I mean, it's one of the axioms of, of endocrinology is if you have a hormone deficiency, you've got to replace the hormone. So somebody's A1C is very high, up above 12. Um, they're obviously not making much insulin. They're at increased risk, even as a type 2, for developing DKA. And those individuals are going to need to be on insulin. So sometimes you have to use insulin earlier on to break that glucose toxicity while you're using other medications. And you may be able to back off. But so we want to try as much as we can to use medications that are at lower risk for hypoglycemia. Now, other individuals that would be at increased risk for hypoglycemia are people with chronic kidney disease. The other hat that I wear in nephrology, as people's GFRs drop, their kidney function drops, and this puts them at increased risk for hypoglycemia. The kidney does two very important things. One is that in stressful situations, not in normal physiologic states, but in states of physiologic stress, the kidney actually is a glucose producing organ. And this actually helps prevent hypoglycemia. I think of what, about 20%? Isn't it 20% of glucose is coming from the kidneys more or less? It can, and, and again, in more stressful situations. In a non-stressful just situation, most of the time, most of the glucose is being produced from the liver. But again, when you develop hypoglycemia, potentially from taking too much insulin or something like this, your kidney can actually help out quite a bit in trying to prevent that hypoglycemia by making glucose. So Lance, just to be clear, there are certain medications that do provoke hypoglycemia based on their mechanism of action. So the secretagogues, for instance, induce insulin secretion from the beta cell independent of the blood glucose. So that sets a precedence. And like you mentioned before, sometimes if you're deficient in a hormone, you have to add a hormone in and insulin tends to be a hormone that's very useful. And what we've learned over the years is that the variability of the level of activity of some of these insulins can actually reduce the risk of experiencing hypoglycemia. So less variability of those insulin products tend to be friendlier in hopes of averting hypoglycemia. And from some of the studies that have been published of recent, I'm sure that you're very familiar with all of these data. We've seen as much as 40% reductions in nocturnal hypo, which is important because it goes unrecognized. Yes, so yes, the newer, what we've tried to do, you know, all insulins will lower blood sugar. So when different companies come to you to sell you their products, uh, they're all going to lower the blood sugars. The difference that we're looking at is this reduction in, in variability, particularly at nighttime, which can lead to nocturnal hypoglycemia. So what we're seeing with the newer products is less variability, and this results in less hypoglycemia for the same amount of glucose control, particularly at night. And that can be very helpful for our patients. So real important is the fact that, I mean, insulin is our friend. We've used it for, wow, a hundred years, you know, and it's been, it's evolved and continuing to get better. But if we look at current recommendations, current guidelines that have been issued by American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, we're looking at the American Diabetes Association, EASD, they still recommend if we're going to be using injectable therapy, using something else before using insulin. And I guess there's a lot of reason why to do that, which I'm sure that you're going to touch upon during the rest of this conversation. 
Well, that, that's what I was trying to touch upon a little bit earlier is that normally we do like to start off with drugs that have a low risk for hypoglycemia and weight gain. And luckily, we have choices today that I kind of mentioned before compared to what we had when I started, where we only had, again, sulfonylureas and insulin to use years ago. So it's nice that a lot of the improvements that we've made over time aren't so much in efficacy with glucose lowering, but are really more about safety when it comes to uh, hypoglycemia and weight. Now, of course, we've now entered a new area with SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 analogs where we have drugs that can reduce some of the cardiovascular bad outcomes that occur in diabetes, as well as reduce the risk for kidney disease. So besides just reducing the risk for hypoglycemia and weight gain, we have other things now that we can also reduce the risk of with our other drugs. So our drugs are improving, you know, our safety and our ability to treat the entire diabetes picture from what we've had in the past. So interestingly, we're starting to screen a lot more for diabetes these days by looking at blood tests like hemoglobin A1C. And if that hemoglobin A1C is greater than 6.5%, one can say that the patient does have established type two diabetes. Although if we're looking at blood tests and we see other parameters that suggest that there might be diabetes in the absence of an A1C being that elevated, doing a two hour postprandial makes sense in order to establish that diabetes only because diabetes does have significant end organ effects, particularly with progression of kidney disease and also cardiovascular disease. But a lot of these patients that we're screening these days are being diagnosed in their older years. So now that we have an older population of newly diagnosed diabetics, I mean, how does this play out in terms of the potential risks of hypoglycemia, Lance? Well, this would be another high-risk group or higher-risk group for hypoglycemia is the elderly. We've already touched on individuals that are on high-risk drugs like insulin and oral secretagogues and and also chronic kidney disease due to the decreased ability of the kidney to produce glucose, as well as the decreased ability of the kidney to metabolize insulin. But the elderly, of course, are on polypharmacy. Of course, their ability to think and to sometimes recognize symptoms can be reduced. Obviously, everybody is is different as they get older. I tend to try to look at people based upon their physiologic age more than their chronologic age, because I know we've all seen within our population people that are very vital, even when they're older, they don't look that old, they're very active. And then you see other people that, again, have a hard time using a cell phone. So we do have to look at our patients and make decisions, particularly when it comes to our glycemic goals because they can be at, again, increased risk for hypoglycemia. So for most of my patients, our goal is uh, with ACE, and my goal is to get the patient's A1C ideally down below where we would diagnose them with having diabetes because where we diagnose them is supposed to be where they're at high risk for microvascular complications. But I only do that in people that are willing to do the things that are necessary to get to that goal and are capable. So this is particularly appropriate for an elderly individual. So they may be willing, but if they're not able themselves to take their medications and to potentially recognize symptoms of hypoglycemia 
and treat them. And even if they're not able to get the medications I think they need to get that we discussed earlier, that would reduce the risk for hypoglycemia, they may not be a good candidate to get to an A1C goal of 6.5. And maybe seven, maybe even eight may be more appropriate. Obviously, if an elderly individual is in a nursing home where somebody else is having to care for them, they probably don't need to have such an aggressive goal. Again, a goal of seven or maybe even eight may be more appropriate for that individual. Without a doubt. And I do recall that there was a study that was done uh, some time ago, back in 2005, where they actually looked at uh, physiologic responses to induced hypoglycemia based on age. And it was kind of interesting that the hypoglycemia response or the threshold for identification was significantly narrowed in the older population, over 65, relative to those that were at 23 years of age. And that was like a real eye-opener because this older population, as you just mentioned a short while ago, certainly are at greater risk of developing hypoglycemia. But what's nice now is that with these new medications that do work by refining the pancreatic axis and beta cell response and alpha cell balance, they tend to be a little bit safer in terms of reducing the risk of developing hypoglycemia. And it is easier to have tighter control without hypoglycemia if we're using some of these agents. But you know, I think we were always challenged historically with the variability of the activity of some of the agents that were used previously. But again, in theme with being a little bit older and being mature, and the association of diabetes is heart disease. So, I mean, how does heart disease play out in terms of our treatment decisions for managing diabetes and trying to avert hypoglycemia, Lance? Yeah, so I think this is a really good area for discussion because you'll see frequently in different guidelines about telling people to shy away and be much less aggressive in individuals that have a history of heart disease. I think really where the risk here is in people that have unstable heart disease. So if you have someone who is having symptoms of angina, things of this sort, I think what you really need to be doing is addressing that. They may need some type of endovascular procedure in medical treatment. A beta blocker, of course, would be reasonable, but also remember that beta blockers can sometimes reduce the individual's ability to notice some of those adrenergic symptoms that we talked about earlier on. But nevertheless, you need to treat the heart disease, I think is the real thing to do. It should be your main focus beyond just backing off on your therapy. Once you have the heart under control, then obviously you can readdress what your goals might be for treating their hyperglycemia. But certainly during that period of time where they are unstable, then you need to back off on your goals and not be as aggressive because hypoglycemia can increase to result in, as I just mentioned, to an increased adrenergic sympathetic response that could worsen those person's symptoms and possibly drive them to having an event. And we don't want to do that. Indeed. And I think from a physiologic standpoint, I mean, hypoglycemia can be quite detrimental on the cardiovascular system. You know, first of all, you get endothelial destabilization with increased levels of CRP, vasculoendothelial growth factors go up as well as IL-6, and you get neutrophil activation and factor seven levels go up. And there's a lot of different things that can actually propagate an event as a consequence of significant 
hypoglycemia. And I think they actually got it right when they talked about liberalizing control or choosing an appropriate hemoglobin A1C target based on your risk factors. And these include unstable coronary disease. And even, I mean, Lance, with you, I mean, you take care of a lot of renal patients. So I'm sure that those relaxed values are quite applicable to your population of patients. Yes. Well, I think the key thing that we've kind of been touching on here, though, is that you really have to individualize all these, the different studies and all the good points that you're making, Javier, are things that we need to be aware of and sensitive in these higher risk populations. But but after identifying them, we have to assess each individual on their basis and make a decision about uh, what's best for their care and individualizing goals to reduce the risk for hypoglycemia and developing other complications that we're talking about. Yeah. So, and certainly, I mean, there's a myriad of medications out there that, I mean, they've been repeatedly mentioned during this podcast that minimize the potentials of hypoglycemia and combination therapies actually work pretty well in terms of achieving control, which is kind of neat. But setting treatment goals are certainly going to be appropriate. As you mentioned before, what's going to be the appropriate hemoglobin A1C target? But I mean, we also have some really cool tools that help to identify the potentials of hypoglycemia. Could you tell us a little bit about CGM and how to use these? Yeah, so this is just... uh... You know, another game changer we've, in the diabetes world, we've, we've talked about some of the new medications and how they've been game changers, not just for reducing the risk of hypoglycemia and weight gain, but also cardiorenal outcomes. But now we have continuous glucose monitoring, which is particularly helpful for those individuals taking high-risk medications, particularly insulin and multiple daily insulin injections. So instead of having to intermittently check your blood sugar or check it once you have symptoms, now we can have a a device that individuals can wear that hopefully will warn them if the blood sugars are dropping too rapidly or dropping below a particular goal, even when they're sleeping at night, which scares a lot of people. A lot of people back off on their insulin dosages at night because they're so scared about having nocturnal hypoglycemia. On all of my patients now that are on insulin pumps or multiple daily injections of insulin, they are definitely on a continuous glucose monitor. And many of my patients even that are, you know, on long-acting insulin, maybe even a few that are on just oral medications will use this instead uh, if they can afford it and that's what they want to do. But it really is a, a game changer for trying to reduce the risk for hypoglycemia, particularly for our patients, again, that are on multiple daily injections of insulin. You know, what's kind of neat is that I use continuous glucose monitors in my clinical practice as well. Well, for several reasons. For one thing is to identify behavior, because oftentimes you could really see how high a slice of pizza can drive that blood glucose. But even in those who have really, really good control with A1Cs within the ranges that we recommend for them, sometimes slapping on a blinded CGM to determine whether or not they might be developing nocturnal hypoglycemia really winds up being quite useful. So at least that's one sophisticated measure that we could use to identify hypoglycemia aside from symptoms and finger sticks. And we are embracing technology and using pumps but even pumps themselves have become very sophisticated. Lance, can you tell us a little bit about 
what these pumps have to offer these days? Yeah, so we have pumps these days that, of course, will work with our continuous glucose monitoring systems and seamlessly basically do the kind of things that I was somewhat alluding to earlier, and that when your blood sugars are dropping too rapidly or get below a particular threshold, it can reduce the amount of insulin the pump is providing or turn the pump off altogether to try and avert an episode of hypoglycemia, particularly at night. So they have these threshold suspend and predictive low glucose suspend features. So Lance, these pumps really have become quite sophisticated with all of these new algorithms and so forth. And I guess the evolution of the closed loop system is becoming a little bit closer to reality in terms of allowing our patients to gain fairly good control and minimizing that hypoglycemia. But now that we've identified and described hypoglycemia, both from a physiologic and a symptomatic standpoint, and we talked about the technology, I think it's time to bring it home and let's talk about how to manage hypoglycemic events and what should we do? So Lance, you want to take it away? Yeah, so I think we need to do all these different things that we, we have talked about, and that's identifying the patient that's at, at high risk, trying to put them on medications that would and uh, different protocols that would reduce that risk, setting appropriate treatment goals, using CGMS in appropriate individuals to reduce risk, possibly, again, in individuals that are at high risk or we could get better blood sugar control with an insulin pump, particularly using these pumps that work with a CGMS to provide at least a partial closed loop to improve blood sugar control and to reduce hypoglycemia. And then, of course, I think the final thing is, of course, we need to educate our patients that are on medications that increase their risk for hypoglycemia about glucagon preparations. And luckily, there's been big changes in that area in the last year or two. We used to have a preparation where you actually would have to take the powder and mix it with a liquid, and then you'd have to draw it up, and then you'd have to inject it. You'd have to go through all these steps, and maybe the other person really didn't know what they were doing. And of course, they hadn't seen somebody have a hypoglycemic episode and a seizure before, and all this is going on while they're trying to figure out how to do this preparation. And luckily, now we have some other options. We now have a GVOC, which is a glucagon preparation that does not require any mixing and can be used from individuals from two years of age or older. Comes in two different dosages, basically based upon weight. And then we also now also have Baximi, which is a preparation for individuals four years of age and older that is a nasal spray that you just basically spray up the nose very simply. And both of these preparations work very well to help revive the individual. And then of course, you want them to take some oral glucose and carbohydrate. Now, obviously we use these preparations in severe hypoglycemic settings and the patient wouldn't be the one normally using it. It would be some other family member or friend or coworker that would be administering this. But patients obviously need to be educated to know what the symptoms of hypoglycemia are and to keep some type of oral glucose or carbohydrate preparation with them in case they were to experience these symptoms and treat them prior to hopefully developing severe hypoglycemia. But it's nice now that we've had such a change 
in our armamentarium to reduce the risk for our patients of hypoglycemia and making it easier to treat when they do develop it. Indeed, it's a nice adjunct to the traditional things that we always used to do because typically whenever a patient does experience symptoms of hypoglycemia and confirmed with a blood glucose, the rule of 15s always would apply. 15 grams of carbohydrate, recheck that glucose 15 minutes later. And if it's still low, another 15 grams of carbohydrates. But certainly if they continue to progress with their hypoglycemia, then they would require a little bit more. And, and these glucagon preparations, the evolution of the ability to treat major hypoglycemic events really has gone really to the next level. And it's made it that much easier. So at this point in time, Lance, I want to thank you so much for your valuable contributions to this podcast. And I hope you, the audience, got a lot out of it and hopefully had as much fun listening to this presentation as we've had making it for you. My name is Javier Morales and Lance, thanks once again and have a great day. Thank you, Javier. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.